A very good evening to you all. I'm George Bush, the rector of St. Mary Le Beau, where even now people, I believe, are battering on the door for admission. And in welcoming you to the 2010 Boyle Lecture, the seventh in the revived and now confident series, I begin by offering heartfelt thanks to Father John Mothersole, the church wardens, and the people of St. Mary Aldermary for their hospitality tonight. Occasioned by the dislocation from St. Mary Le Beau caused by scaffolding preparatory to the installation of a new organ. But we are indeed delighted to be here and perhaps to introduce a few of you to this remarkable church building, which in its present form Robert Boyle will surely have known. There are notes about the church in the papers on your seats prepared by the priest in charge. But what is not there is any acknowledgement of his remarkable vision and energy in restoring, ordering and decorating this building in the past 10 and more years, for which remarkable work we congratulate him and the people of this congregation. Although there are many interested clergy here, this is assuredly not a clerical event. As our lecturer will show tonight, Robert Boyle was a faithful layman without the clergyman's typical loyalties and preoccupations, and enjoying additionally the benefits of a gentleman of the time's assurance and access. Tonight's subject matter gives me an opportunity to thank the Boyle family, and especially Lord Cork, sadly prevented from temporary incapacity from being with us, for his warm interest in the revival of this series and his generosity in commissioning the lecturer's splendid commemorative medal. Of course, in the age of Susan Boyle, anyone arguably might call themselves Earl of Cork. Although, as I was reminded by a member of the family, such a person would hardly be the 15th Earl. Boyle's background and interests ensured that his scientific enthusiasm was morally propelled. This was suitable to the tone of St. Mary Le Beau at the time. If in our day our parish objects encompass relations with other faiths, the extension of financial services, microfinance to the poorest communities, fair trade, public dialogue, homelessness even, that high moral ambition was there in Boyle's day as well, and certainly contemporary with the early Boyle Lectures. The Society for the Reformation of Manners, whose methods of denouncing the offending would, I trust, recommend themselves to few of us here, and the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, which sought to spread the gospel in the new colonies, were both heftily associated with the parish. Equally, the parish had its own religious society, which sponsored regular sermons and had a distinguished panel to select preachers, a panel perhaps not so unlike our own splendid trustees. And it is into that atmosphere of devout and morally purposeful inquiry that the Boyle Lectures emerged and arguably remain. To introduce tonight's lecturer, I am pleased to acknowledge my debt to the series moderator and animator, Dr. Michael Byrne.
ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure for me to echo George's warm welcome to you all to this, the seventh in the new series of Boyle Lectures in Science and Theology. As George has said, the lecture usually takes place at St. Mary Le Beau, the site of many of the original Boyle Lectures given between 1692 and 1731, and about which both John Hedley Brook and Geoffrey Cantor will have more to say in this evening's presentations. However, owing to repairs currently taking place at St. Mary Le Beau, we've taken the Boyle on tour this year to the neighboring Wren Church of St. Mary Aldermarie. And as George has said, we're very grateful to all those who've made us feel so welcome here this evening. When George and I restarted the Boyle Lectures in 2004, it was as a conscious part of the long tradition of dialogue for which St. Mary Le Beau is so widely known. That a dialogue could and should take place between theology and the sciences is not a new idea. It was, in fact, the very point of the original Boyles held in London 400 years ago. But science in particular has developed hugely since then, and the center of gravity in that dialogue has perhaps moved in science's favor since the days of Robert Boyle and the early Royal Society in which he played such a prominent role. George's view and mine in reviving the Boyles was that a new set of lectures rooted in St. Mary's long tradition of dialogue and located where the original exchanges had taken place would mark the historical continuity which is rightly of such importance to both the City of London and the Church of England but would also challenge our audiences by bringing new ideas to bear on old disciplines. Previous Boyle lecturers from John Hort in 2004, through Simon Conway Morris, Philip Clayton, John Barrow, Malcolm Jeeves, and Keith Ward last year, have all helped us to succeed far more fully in that objective than we thought possible seven years ago. And I'm confident that this year's lecturer and responder will help us to continue that fine tradition. Our lecturer this year, John Hedley Brook, was educated at Cambridge University, obtaining a first-class degree in the natural sciences in 1965, and then a doctorate for work in the history of chemistry four years later. For 30 years, he taught at Lancaster University, becoming a member of the International Academy of the History of Science in 1993. In 1995 to 96, with Geoffrey Cantor, this year's responder, he gave the celebrated Gifford Lectures at Glasgow. From 1999 to 2006, he was the first Andreas Idrios Professor of Science and Religion at Oxford, Director of the Ian Ramsey Centre, and a Fellow of Harris Manchester College. Following his retirement, Professor Brooke has spent time as a distinguished fellow at the Institute of Advanced Study in the University of Durham. A former editor of the British Journal for the History of Science, he has also been president of the British Society of the History of Science, of the historical section of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, and of the International Society for Science and Religion. Following John, we'll hear from this year's responder, Geoffrey Cantor, who is Emeritus Professor of the History of Science at the University of Leeds. With a background in physics, Professor Cantor moved first into the history of physics with a focus on optics, and then into the history of science and religion, in his research on Michael Faraday and Faraday's involvement with the Sandemanian Church. <laughs> Professor Cantor's research in this area subsequently developed in several directions, including the Gifford Lectures at Glasgow with John Brooke, which explored the uses of history 
in our understanding of the interrelationship between science and religion. He has also researched the attitudes towards science of small religious communities, specifically the Quakers and Anglo-Jewish communities in 18th and 19th century Britain. We are very grateful that both speakers so readily accepted our invitation to be here this evening. And it gives me great pleasure now to call on Professor John Headley Brook to deliver the 2010 Boyle Lecture on the legacy of Robert Boyle, then and now. Thank you, and a warm thank you to Michael for that very generous introduction. Late in the 17th century, in the church of St. Mary Le Beau, just round the corner, a sermon was preached on the folly of atheism. It was an unusual lecture because the congregation heard how the denial of a god was at odds with the latest science. The orator was a fine scholar and sure of his facts. The design of the universe simply had to be ascribed to divine wisdom. Who was this confident apologist? His initials were R.B. His name, Richard Bentley. A classic scholar, Bentley gave the first of a long and distinguished series of what came to be known as the Boyle Lectures. They owe their name to the fact that one of England's greatest scientists provided the legacy that made them possible. In his will, Robert Boyle bequeathed the sum of 50 pounds per annum forever, or at least for a considerable number of years. The lecturers would have as their brief to prove the Christian religion against notorious infidels, viz. atheists, theists, pagans, Jews, and Mahometans. And as a rider to which we shall return, he added that they were not to descend to any controversies among Christians themselves. Boyle's philanthropy was not just a post-mortem gesture. In a life dedicated to conciliation between science and Christianity, he had financed translations of the New Testament into exotic languages and funded numerous foreign missions. So who was this figure without whom we would certainly not be gathered here? Young Robert had been born into one of the most elevated aristocratic families in England. He was the youngest son of Richard Boyle, Earl of Cork, and Lord High Treasurer of Ireland before the Civil War. Robert may have been surprised to find that he'd been born at all. He was the 14th of 15 children. His education included three years at Eton and was extended by foreign travel in the company of a private tutor. He would learn Italian in order to read the works of Galileo, and it was while in Geneva that he read meaning into a violent thunderstorm. He saw, as it were in a flash, 
that he was ill-prepared for the day of judgment. His religious conversion did not kill his curiosity, and it's been said of his time in Italy and France that he was repelled but also fascinated by Catholic religious practices that he'd been taught to see as superstitious. Boyle never lost interest in stories relayed to him about the paranormal and the supernatural. A reversal in the family fortune as a consequence of the Civil War was itself gradually reversed. From 1645 to 1655, Boyle lived on the family estate at Stolbridge in Dorset. As Michael Hunter has pointed out, there were features of aristocratic society that to the studious were less than congenial. In Boyle's own words, how easy it was to squander away a whole afternoon in tattling of this lady's face and t'other lady's clothes, of this lord's being drunk and that lord's clap, in telling how this gentleman's horse outrun that other's mare. If Boyle had already had his religious conversion, his conversion to science came during his Stalbridge years. By 1649, he'd set up a chemistry lab where he subjected chemical substances to analysis by fire. A fume-filled chemilab is not everyone's vision of heaven. But for Boyle, it almost was. To his sister, he wrote, Vulcan has so transported and bewitched me that I fancy my laboratory a kind of Elysium. In 1655, he moved to Oxford, where he was welcomed in the scientific circle that gathered around John Wilkins, warden of Wadham College. Wilkins played a leading role in the establishment of the Royal Society, which is celebrating, as you know, its 350th anniversary this year. Boyle played his part, attending its meetings, serving on the council, proposing new members, and occasionally donating apparatus. This was necessary because in its early years it was a society with a royal charter, but without royal cash. In 1668, Boyle moved from Oxford to London, where he lived with his sister Catherine for the rest of his life, never marrying. Those who studied him in depth invariably refer to the strength of his religious convictions. Why, despite encouragement, did he decline the Anglican priesthood? He actually had a thoughtful answer to that question. His defense of Christianity and of its harmony with science would be more effective if he remained a layman. To write as a clergyman, he suggested, would have risked the cynical retort that he would say that, wouldn't he? Boyle was content, in his own words, to be a priest in the temple of nature. 
In the world of science, Boyle enjoys the reputation of a progressive, as the proponent of a mechanical philosophy of nature that challenged Aristotelian accounts of why substances have the properties they do. The title of his book, The Skeptical Chemist, has suggested to the unwary that he must have cleansed chemistry of its alchemical pretensions. But Boyle is best known for the discovery of a law with his name on it, the inverse relationship between the pressure and volume of an ideal gas at constant temperature. There are, however, problems with each of these pictures. Boyle's law was never formulated as a law by Boyle. He simply tabulated pressure readings and the volume readings with which they were correlated. And he was much less interested in ideal gases than in real ones. He did explain chemical reactions mechanically by supposing that hierarchicals, or hierarchies of particles or corpuscles of matter were broken down and reassembled in different ways. Why, for example, is an acid an acid? The Aristotelian might say, because it has the form of acidity. Boyle was not alone among 17th century chemists in wanting more than that. It might rather be that the constituent particles of an acid were in particular states of motion or had sharp edges that would account for their potency. If you swirl acid around in your mouth, you can actually feel the little daggers on your tongue. Not, I hasten to add, this is an experiment I particularly recommend. But it's easy to exaggerate the scope Boyle gave to his mechanical explanations. His universe, in fact, contained many non-material items of which the human mind was the prime example. He tells us that he was long distrustful of stories about the philosopher's stone. But increasingly, he became what Larry Principe describes as an aspiring adept. His skepticism in The Skeptical Chemist was not directed against the possibility of metallic transmutation, but against prevailing methods of fire analysis that purported to reveal the true elements of bodies. There were alchemists who abandoned their alchemical dreams. Boyle kept a more open mind, as you'll see from one of the illustrative quotations on the handout, quotation A. I'm not going to read those quotations, incidentally, because Boyle's prose is so prolix uh, that one would lose one's way in the grammar of the sentence. But they're there for your delectation uh, before you fall asleep. Boyle even believed that if the philosopher's stone could be found, it might have the property of attracting spirits, hopefully angelic rather than demonic. And that would meet another of Boyle's lifelong concerns, the refutation of atheism. He worried about the probity of experiments that might compromise his piety. But as he once wrote, 
it required only one properly authenticated relation of a supernatural phenomenon to defeat the atheist. The past to which Boyle belonged is certainly a foreign country. And so you might be asking, is there any point in resurrecting him? Is it even meaningful to ask whether he left an intellectual legacy that might be of any relevance today? So I'd like to spend a few moments on what might be considered deterrence to the resurrection of Boyle. The discontinuities between his time and ours are, of course, legion. The world we have lost was one in which scientific truths might still be authenticated in scripture. Boyle's contemporary, Henry Moore, declared Moses to have been the first atomist. And there are echoes of such an outlook among some Muslim attempts today to authenticate the Quran from its supposedly scientific prescience. But that's not a strategy approved by discerning Muslim scientists. Boyle's world was a world only just dislodged from the center of the universe, John Wilkins having championed the Copernican system in England. It was a world that by our standards was still young, no more than a few thousand years old. Humans had been on the earth from the beginning, and references to a created world were to one in which God's creatures had been preserved in their original form. The spectre of mass extinctions was far in the future, and public debates over Darwinian evolution still some 200 years hence. And because Darwin's science was to threaten the design argument in its 17th century formulations, we cannot ignore Richard Dawkins' well-known objection that any philosophy of nature constructed before Darwin will be worthless. Boyle was a creature of his time, and we saw this in the chauvinism inscribed in his will. You will have noticed that Muslims and Jews are aligned with atheists and even plain theists as opponents. And it's not my aim this evening to abstract a sanitized Boyle from the scientific and religious worlds he occupied. His assumption, for example, that matter is entirely passive and amenable to immaterial influences contrasts with modern images of active, self-organizing matter. His clockwork universe, elaborated in its more familiar Newtonian form, has not survived the revolutions in 20th century physics. But there are certain parallels with our own time that bear investigation. We often hear today about a new atheism, for which Dawkins is the best-known proselyte. But there was a new atheism in Boyle's day, typified by a renaissance of the atomic philosophy of Epicurus and Lucretius. We face a threat today from the zeal of religious fundamentalists. Boyle had to contend with their equivalents in mid-17th century England, Protestant zealots with their hotlines to God. To Boyle's annoyance, they were giving the false impression 
but Christianity and philosophy were incompatible. You'll see that in quotation B. Despite the far higher profile that a culture of science and technology enjoys today, we often hear of a public suspicion of scientific authority. It's a suspicion not so dissimilar to that faced by Boyle and his contemporaries who had to make the foundational case for science. There are still other parallels. Standard neo-Darwinian mechanisms for evolution do constitute a difficulty for those seeking a providential God having recognizable purposes in the world. But ends, goals, final causes, purposes in nature were already under threat when Boyle took up his pen. And this from two different directions, from the Epicurean vision that the world is the chance product of atomic collisions, but also from the philosophy of Descartes. I'm always reminded here of one of my former students who revealed in his essay that Descartes was a Cartesian. <clears throat> the challenge came from Descartes' insistence, ostensibly on theological grounds, that it's presumptuous to imagine we can discern God's purposes in nature. We'll see later how Boyle rose to this dual challenge. He deserves a hearing because he illustrates a point that the modern world sometimes forgets, that it was possible to find in Christian theology resources to promote, to legitimate, and in some instances to motivate an intensive study of nature. If Boyle contributed to an enduring scientific movement, then there is a sense in which his legacy has been enduring. Michael Hunter, who has written so authoritatively on Boyle, declares that it's not an exaggeration to describe Boyle as the founder of experimental science in the modern sense. And if Hunter is right, as I believe he is, in seeing great profundity in Boyle's reflections on the relationship of science to religion, then we should not be stalled by the deterrents to which I've just referred. So a few words on Boyle and the promotion of experimental science. It's sometimes said that without Christianity, there would have been no modern science. A doctrine of creation provided the grounds for believing that nature was ordered and intelligible, and that the human mind had a God-given capacity to understand it. The more we've learned of scientific practices in other cultures, especially the achievements of the medieval Islamic world, the more difficult it is to argue for an exclusively Christian impetus. But there remains a question recently addressed by Peter Harrison and Stephen Gortroger. Why was it only in the West that an enduring scientific culture was established? Other cultures had their science, but the pattern was boom and bust. By contrast, the scientific movement in 17th century Europe 
gained a momentum that proved unstoppable. The reasons are many and complex, but they include the fact that within the Judeo-Christian tradition, there were resources for legitimating a humble, experimental science. Francis Bacon had tapped some of these earlier in the 17th century. In Boyle, we have a window on how Christianity and scientific virtuosity were fused together. Like Bacon before him, Boyle spoke of God as the author of two books, the Bible, the book of his words, and the natural world, the book of his works. As there was a duty to study the scriptures, so there was a duty to study the book of nature. And since the two books had the same author, they simply could not conflict. Knowledge gleaned from nature might even assist the interpretation of scripture, as Galileo had argued. Boyle underlined the same point. God has made some knowledge of his created book, he wrote, both conducive to belief and necessary to the understanding of his written book. Today, we take experimental methods in science for granted. In Boyle's day, they were problematic. One could argue, as many did, that it was less arrogant to investigate the world empirically than to take one's authority from Aristotle or to philosophize in an armchair. But there were at least three problems. If someone came along claiming they'd performed an experiment that exploded a prevailing view, why should you believe him? Why should you believe his experiment had been well-designed and properly conducted? And why should you believe his interpretation of the data? It helped, of course, if the experimenter were a trustworthy gentleman, an advantage that a refined Robert Boyle certainly had. This means there was a moral and social dimension to the corroboration of scientific knowledge. Credible witnesses to an experiment were not always available, but when they were, they were a godsend. When Boyle commended an experimental philosophy, it was not a philosophy based on simple observation. As Bacon had recognized, one had to intervene in nature to extract her secrets. Boyle's experiments in chemistry show how he helped to consolidate the Baconian program. For example, through an elaborate sequence of operations, he not only decomposed saltpeter, that's our potassium nitrate, but also managed to recompose it. So what, you might think? In fact, his experiment was a significant moment in the long history of differentiating nature from art. It was conventionally supposed that a product found in nature owed its integrity to a homogeneous form that could not be replicated artificially. In Boyle's mechanical chemistry, it could be. And I use the word mechanical deliberately because there was a far wider sense in which the distinction between nature and art was breaking down in 17th century science. When the universe was compared to a machine, 
there was a sense in which nature became an artifact, the work of a divine craftsman. All things are artificial, wrote one contemporary, because nature itself is nothing but the art of God. Now we can perhaps begin to see how Boyle could present himself as a Christian virtuoso. One of his favorite moves was to compare the universe with the cathedral clock in Strasbourg. There's an image of that on your handout. The analogy, of course, might run into problems. How could God act in a universe that ran like clockwork? But for Boyle, the analogy played a powerful heuristic role. It created the space for both science and religion. The task of the scientist was to investigate the machinery of nature, the cogs, the wheels, and the springs. He would even speak of the spring of the air and suggest it might be made up of microscopic springs that accounted for its greater pressure when compressed. But the clockwork analogies also left room for religious belief, because clocks, after all, are made for a purpose, as Boyle explains very clearly in quotation C. Machines do not spring into existence by themselves. And it was not merely that room was left for religious belief, the exquisite machinery to be found in creation positively required it. The construction of the human eye, for example, was a work of such delicate craftsmanship that it testified to divine wisdom. The connections that Boyle made between his Christianity and his science are manifold and intimate. As he set the parameters for a science-based natural theology, he argued that it was the accomplished scientist, the accomplished natural philosopher, who was in the best position to appreciate God's workmanship. One had to pry into the recesses of nature to fully appreciate divine wisdom. And that, in turn, required a competence in anatomy, optics, mechanics, and chemistry. Chemistry, in particular, helped to realize the Baconian dream. It offered the prospect of improving the world and of restoring a dominion over nature lost at the fall. There was the seductive promise of a better world if scientific knowledge were applied to the relief of man's estate. There is a, a sense in which Boyle personifies the application of chemistry to medicine. We're told that he had a cupboard of chemical cordials which he trusted more than any physician. Indeed, it was reported that when he woke each, mon each morning, he would consult his sealing compass to see from which direction the wind was coming and then take the appropriate antidote. So, observed Roger North, if the wind were often to change direction, Mr. Boyle was wont to become drunk. <laughs> A few words on Boyle and the revival of natural theology. Claims are sometimes made today for a new revival 
of natural theology. By revisiting Boyle, we can see some of the reasons why arguments from nature to God have had a recurring appeal. Boyle never believed that a rational theology could be freestanding. Scripture had a crucial role in revealing a God with intentions for humanity, one of which was that we should have responsibility for and dominion over nature. In Boyle, there's an interweaving of natural and revealed theology. But as we've just seen, one of his objectives was certainly to sanctify the sciences against religious suspicion. There were clearly other pressures to which Boyle responded and which have their modern equivalents. One was the threat to Christianity from internal divisions. In the late 1640s, the proliferation of Puritan sects was such that Boyle countered, and I quote, no less than 200 several opinions on points of religion. And the problem was that dispute brought disrepute. To come to London, Boyle warned, was to come nigh to losing one's faith. I'm told this may still be the case. <laughs> Boyle developed a double strategy to meet the threat. He stressed that in Christian doctrines such as the Trinity, there were elements that were above reason. To dogmatize about so incomprehensible a matter as the nature of God was therefore inappropriate. But it also helped, and this is the second strand, it also helped if one could restore a fundamental belief in the existence and wisdom of God. And that might be accomplished through appeals to design in nature. A quite different threat to Christianity came from the scoffers, immortalized in restoration comedies. Let me remind you of a few titillating titles. The Merry Milkmaid of Islington, Love Lost in the Dark, The Politic Whore or The Conceited Cuckold. These were encounters one might have when visiting what Boyle called this libertine city. In 1675, a wonderful description was given of the character of a town gallant. Frequenting the coffee houses and pretending to know something of Thomas Hobbes, he would laugh at spirits and maintain that there are no angels but those in petticoats. A practical as well as a cerebral atheism had to be addressed. Boyle resolutely wrote that only someone who had not studied nature could be an atheist. Even someone of the meanest intellect, according to the great naturalist John Ray, could appreciate nature's marvels and their testimony to divine wisdom. In his discerning work on the history of natural theology, my responder this evening, Geoffrey Cantor, has stressed one of the key rhetorical functions of arguments grounded in nature, and that is to reassure those whose faith might be wavering. Boyle again 
provides a perfect illustration. He wished to provide firmer grounds for belief, to prevent the faithful from falling by the wayside, and to startle the irreligious out of their stupor. If Boyle raised the profile of natural theology, it was for yet another reason. He was genuinely overawed by what science was revealing about the world. The revival of natural theology today has been inspired in part by the discovery of the anthropic coincidences and the claim that the universe appears to have been finely tuned for life. The revelation in Boyle's day was of an entirely new world, visible only through the microscope. With a genuine sense of wonder, Boyle marveled that God had been able to pack life into the minutest might. The eye of a fly, famously depicted by Robert Hooke in his Micrographia, was for Boyle a more curious piece of workmanship than the body of the sun. On the handout, there's the picture of the fly and its eye. Um, you'll also find the gargantuan flea, which I think evoked many feelings amongst its readers. But there were certainly those who found a place for a flea bite in the economy of nature. For the poor, it provided a cheaper mode of bloodletting than an expensive visit to the doctor. When responding to Descartes' censure of final causes, Boyle conceded that there were inanimate objects that did not testify to divine wisdom. He also conceded that many of God's purposes were likely to be beyond human grasp. But surely no reasonable person could deny that eyes had been made to see with. Other features of human anatomy, the valves in the veins, for example, might once have appeared useless. But with William Harvey's recent discovery of the circulation of the blood, their purpose had become clear. Now, immediate objections are likely to occur to us. What of the diseases of the eye? For Boyle, they served to demonstrate just how delicately the healthy eye had been crafted. And this was no facile response, because Boyle's own vision was impaired. And for much of his life, he needed the help of an amanuensis. What about inherently imperfect eyes of the mole, for example? Not a problem for Boyle. Nature had designed moles to live underground. Boyle recognized many gradations of perfection in the eyes of other animals, but this only confirmed that his god favored biodiversity. And you'll see that in quotation F. The real problem, of course, is that in a post-Darwinian universe, eyes are the product of evolution, not of contrivance. Surely we can't pull Boyle through the Dawkins barrier. No. And yet, there is a partial resemblance between Darwin and Boyle 
When Darwin defined what he meant by nature, it was this. By nature I mean, and I quote, the laws ordained by God to govern the universe. For Boyle, too, it was a more elevated understanding of God to suppose that the material world he had created and organized was now running according to laws of motion. For Boyle and most of his successors in the discourse of natural theology, you could not have laws of nature without the existence of a lawmaker. The metaphor implies that. Boyle's God, Newton's too, for that matter, could change the laws if he wished. Boyle was astute enough to realize that to speak of laws at all was to use a figurative expression. Matter, after all, think about it, matter, after all, is not intelligent enough to know what a law is or how to obey one. Nevertheless, for both Boyle and the Darwin of the 1850s, the order of nature had been ordained by a deity. Science was possible for Boyle because the laws were upheld by God's sustaining power. For Darwin, science was possible because those laws were fixtures in an evolving universe. But even for Darwin, the laws were not bereft of purpose. They had enabled the production of the higher animals, which he once described as the greatest good we can conceive. Well, I come now to the final short section of this lecture, where I want to show that there were genuine insights in Boyle's philosophy that bear scrutiny today, that there still is a legacy. As restorers of purpose and design to the universe, Boyle and his successors had their detractors. The 18th century deist Anthony Collins famously observed that no one had doubted the existence of God until the Boyle lecturers undertook to prove it. <laughs> Collins, Collins had a point, but it hardly applies to Boyle himself. His take on the issue of proof was more subtle. In a lengthy, unpublished manuscript on atheism, he devoted many pages to explaining why a demonstration of God's existence should not be expected. For those with an open mind, a creator God gave the best explanation of why there is a world at all and why it is ordered rather than chaotic. But inference to the best explanation was not the same as proof. And Boyle's use of language is interesting here. Knowledge of nature could illustrate divine attributes it might induce one to conclude or persuade one of God's existence or to settle such a belief in one's mind. But none of this amounted to a proof that would compel an atheist to believe. Boyle, in fact, was as interested in the psychology of religious belief as in its logic. And that's arguably another of his legacies. He remained deeply interested in what made some persons believers and others not. In one manuscript, he jotted down at least nine causes of infidelity. 
and you don't want to hear them all, but they included a love of independency and a vain affectation of applause. So you now know what not to do after this lecture. They also included what Boyle called the obviousness and intelligibility of objections, meaning, I think, that the devil, even then, had some of the best sound bites. Another cause of infidelity was what Boyle described as corrupt principles of philosophy. And here we might begin to recognize another of his insights that how one responds to reasoned arguments depends on where you're coming from. In a recent study of the relations between religion and the physical sciences, the American historian Frederick Gregory has come to a conclusion that has profound implications. He writes, throughout the last two centuries in virtually all cases, of interaction between physical science and religion, the diversity of opinion displayed has stemmed from the variety of assumptions brought to the issues by the participants. And he italicizes the brought to. There can be a universal consensus on what the scientific data are. But their cultural meaning is always a different matter. Scientific theories rarely, if ever, entail metaphysical or theological conclusions. And I think Boyle deserves some credit for appreciating this. In our post-Enlightenment world, we recoil at his tendency to regard immorality as a primary cause of irreligion. But he was well aware that in reactions to natural theology, much depended on what one brought to the issues. And you'll see he uses those two words in quotation H. In the first volume of his trilogy, A Scientific Theology, Alistair McGrath reflected on the critical word natural when contemplating the possibility of a natural theology. McGrath made the shrewd observation that the word nature is itself imbued with so many meanings and carries so much cultural baggage that there's scarcely a stable platform on which a natural theology can be erected. In certain respects, Boyle would be sympathetic to that modern diagnosis. From then until now, the concept of the natural has been rendered increasingly problematic by human interference. In this, the sciences have played a crucial role. Think of our biotechnologies and visions of genetic engineering to transform, enhance, even immortalize what it is to be human. Ironically, ambitions to prolong human life were part and parcel of the alchemical traditions in which Boyle took so keen an interest. But more to the point, Boyle was acutely aware of ambiguity in the very word nature. 
In fact, he was so bothered about it that he wanted to banish the word altogether. This meant finding substitutions for all its common uses. And just to give you a taste, instead of speaking of the nature of a body, Boyle wanted to substitute the word essence. When nature was used to refer to the world or the entire universe, it was no hardship, he suggested, to substitute those words instead. If by nature one meant an established order of things, why not simply say so? One use above all others was dissonant with his Christianity. The vulgar often spoke of nature doing this or doing that. We still do today, and there are still references to Mother Nature. In Aristotelian natural philosophy, it was said that nature abhors a vacuum. But, Boyle protested, nature is not an agent, as if it were a person with intentions. And it was in precisely that context where the word God should be substituted in order to highlight the difference between the creator and his creation. Now, the word nature has, of course, survived Boyle's onslaught, but at least he perceived the problem, the genuine problem, and at least he sounded the alarm. Conclusion. I've not been arguing that we need to revert to Boyle for a better understanding of the world. Those who invoke intelligent design today to pick holes in neo-Darwinian accounts of evolution are, in my view, misguided. To modern ears, there's much in Boyle's moralizing that will sound sanctimonious. Much of his science was eclipsed by that of Newton. But his legacy was far more substantial than the 50 pounds per annum with which he endowed the eponymous lectures. His pursuit of experimental methods had enduring consequences. And there's something in Boyle that many would say we have lost to our detriment, a profound sense of the wonder of nature and how to communicate that to a younger generation. Contrary to the stereotypes of modernity, Boyle bequeathed a view of the world in which there was space for both empirical science and religious faith. Space for both a mechanical universe and belief in providence. He had a very special gift for finding positions that transcended opposing views in both matter theory and in theology. You'll see a very succinct example in quotation I. He saw himself as a peacemaker, which is why the Boyle lecturers were not to descend to controversies among Christians themselves. The wish to mediate wherever possible was a personality trait of which he was deeply self-conscious. I love to speak of persons with civility, he wrote, though of things with freedom. For a quarrelsome and injurious way of writing does very much unbecome a philosopher and a Christian. 
These are no mean legacies, and the example of an honorable peacemaker has never been more necessary than it is today, whether inside or outside the church. Thank you.